Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to yet another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And Mike, the first Grand Slam of the season has come and gone down under from Melbourne. The 2022 Australian Open is in the books and... My God, I think one of the most memorable I can recall in in years, to be honest. It was pretty stellar. I mean, if there was ever a company out there that wanted to do a a behind-the-scenes documentary look at pro (laughs) tennis, oh, I don't know, like maybe Netflix. Oh, there's an idea. Could you have scripted uh, a better start, a more entertaining start with so many different layers and storylines as what we just witnessed? And for me, I love seeing veteran players, older players win championships. And I love seeing players win their home events or home slams. And so from that perspective, this tournament had everything for me with Nadal and Ash Barty both emerging as champions. Yeah, I think we love history, right? And we love looking at the record books. And um, of course, we'll, we'll get to Ash Barty winning uh, the first home slam for a woman in, in 44 years, which is history in its own right. Uh, I think today we're going to start on the men's side and number 21, Rafael Nadal, um, suddenly in pole position in first place in the Grand Slam count with just an extraordinary final victory over Daniil Medvedev. Uh, I'm trying to think of other superl- superlatives to describe it. Impossible, improbable, otherworldly. Um, the victory, 2-6, 6-7, 6-4, 6-4, 5 in five hours, 24 minutes as Nadal topples world number two, Daniil Medvedev. You know, so much of what we were talking about going into the tournament is what it would look like without Novak Djokovic there. Some people felt it was unjust, um, but the tournament, as we said, just delivered. And this was just a, such a titanic final. Um, just my jaw was hitting the floor at so many points in this match. And for me, 21 slams now for Rafael Nadal. This might be his most satisfying of them all. He basically said so after the match. He called it the greatest comeback uh, of his career, given the circumstances. Uh, certainly one of the most satisfying for him. He admitted, given his, his stage, uh, you know, relative to the end of his career at this point, uh, that there's for sure way more behind him than there is in front of him. So relishing a victory of this magnitude more because you know uh, th- there can't be that many more left just given his age and and physical uncertainty, um, as he also mentioned after the match, what he's been dealing with over the course of the last year. So it was just an epic match, whether you're a Nadal fan or not, you've got to have so much respect for what he grinded out there. Uh, I mean, look, kudos to you for getting up every morning and watching. Like, (laughs) I don't know how you did it. You were your jet lag now as you come back down to earth is going to be pretty incredible. But you got up early and watched all of these ones. And I definitely got up and watched, uh, you know, a few. But, you know, in 10 years, you'll realize why it's harder to do uh, than it is. <laughs> you got more going on. You know, 30 and whatnot. But I, I'm not going to lie. I set, uh, you know, sort of an hourly reminder to look at my phone and check the scores. And when I saw Nadal was down by two sets, I said, all right, look, I'm not going to get out of bed at uh, four or five in the morning here. If it looks like he's going to go out in straights. And then when I saw he was turning the tide, of course I had to get up and watch and, and ended up with me and all three of my kids on the couch, just completely mesmerized by what was happening. And my kids don't really watch tennis. They're not at that age where they're, you know, into it to that level. So the fact that they watched that fifth set alongside me and were into it at the age of six and eight years old, 
was pretty telling. And I would imagine there were tons of people who were probably just waking up this morning, uh, Sunday morning, to catch the end of that epic match. Yeah, and I mean, the tributes coming through across social media, so many fellow champions and great players commending the extraordinary effort from Nadal. And if we just dig into the score line and the way the match was going, if we're talking about the first set, it was relatively one-sided from the get-go. And if you looked at the first four to five games, they were on serve at first, but Nadal was grinding out 10-minute holds, which featured excruciatingly long rallies. He was sweating buckets, leaving puddles on the court, and they were only 25 minutes into this match. You're thinking, how is he possibly going to sustain this against world number two, Danil Medvedev, who we talked about as potentially the best hardcore player in the world right now you know he, he proved that by beating Novak Djokovic in straight sets at the U.S. Open uh, so many other key uh, Masters 1000 titles on the hardcore surface and just playing like phenomenal tennis throughout this tournament and he was playing unbelievably well at the start it looked like Rafa didn't have a path to hit through him you're thinking how can he possibly come back in this match second set turns he's up 5-3 has a chance to serve for it doesn't get the job done they go into a tie break he's up 5-3 in the tie break he'll probably rue the miss of a an overhead that was a sitter missed a backhand in an open space and suddenly Medvedev is up two sets to love against 35 and a half year old Rafael Nadal coming off you know a six-month layoff with a chronic foot injury how can he possibly come back from this and I think for a lot of fans watching they almost like I had almost accepted his fate at this point I was thinking you know what a finals result in Melbourne was already impressive enough. And I think he was emotional about even getting back to the final that he could fight his way out of a two sets to love lead though, against the world number two player. It just not how they drew it up in, in, you know, before the match, him and his team. Okay. We're going to drop the first two sets, (laughs) get him feeling real comfortable now. And then we're going to strike because you and I had even mentioned like that first set we thought was so crucial that Rafa would take it. Yes. Right. And get off on the right foot that that dropping the first two. And like you said, at his age did not bode well. I don't know what the odds, if anyone was putting down money after those first two sets would have been, if he had dropped some money on the Spaniard, but you would have crushed it in the end with the uh, reversal of fortunes there. Yeah. And I should mention, you know, in that third set, he's serving two, three love 40 triple break point. I mean, to me that, that's the moment the match is hanging in the balance, right? If he gets broken there, this this is over. over. This is Medvedev's second title and, and first in Australia. 2-3, love 40. He somehow escapes that, wins four straight points, guts out a hold for three all, and, and somehow breaks and gets momentum back in his side. He gets the third set. Even after winning the third set, you'd still think this is such a massive, massive hill to climb. Yes. Um, but, and he said, he said, he just, he said, I just wanted to keep believing until the end. And that's what I did, right? Like the guy didn't think about the scoreline. He just said, okay, I got to keep thinking that I can still do this, that I can get back into it. And, and he truly did. And how many players out there would be able to have that self-belief? And clearly he's got the experience and he's been in difficult moments before in his career. But uh, yeah, this is going to go down as one of the all-time, if not the all-time greatest wins from Rafa Nadal and considering he's won 21 majors in his career including a host of other impressive accomplishments that's really saying something yeah it's and uh you know the conversation was coming uh to how big of a comeback is it is it the biggest comeback in tennis history 
And like, I, I can't go back and have a reference point of all of the greatest comebacks based on a score line. I'm sure we've had scenarios in a slam, you know, someone was down five love in the second set, a storm back and won this unbelievable match. I'm sure it's happened through many points in history. Um, my argument here would just be given the stakes being tied with his rivals at 20 grand slams and getting number 21 this way, his advanced age for me, this has to be, I, I think it has to be the, the greatest 10 uh, men's tennis comeback ever. Yeah. I mean, there's an argument to be made for that. I got to sort of let it simmer a little bit and, and yeah, we got to look back at some more moments, some others, but, <laughs> but you're right in the sense that there was so much on the line because this is the one that separated him from Federer and Djokovic, not in terms of greatness, but in terms of the major yep. title count, of course. I mean, there have been some other uh, comebacks from two sets down in slam finals, even recent ones. Like we think mm -hmm. of Djokovic over CC pass last year at the French, which gave him what his 19th slam. So got him, closer to um to Federer and to Nadal a team over Zverev a couple summers ago at the yes. US Open where Zverev came out of the gates flying and then team crawled back in and got back into it and and in a fifth set tie break 186 and that one was going all over the place in that fifth set and then ones that I remember from when I was a little bit younger, but not as much on the line like uh you know Gaston Gaudio over oh Korea yes that's at right the French when Korea came out six love six three and then blew it, and one to me that had something on the line that was uh, kind of cool and also involved a Medvedev was Agassi over Medvedev, a different Medvedev of course, at the French Open in 1999 when Medvedev won six one six two the opening couple sets, and Agassi won the final three to get his only ever title at Roland Garros, and for him that one obviously held so much importance because it was the only slam he had yet to win in his career. That's right. Yeah, the victory against uh, Andre Medvedev, right? Andre, uh, that was, I couldn't yes, remember. trying to remember the first there. name. Yeah, one six two six six four six three six four. 6 4 flipping that match on his head. Yeah, I think for me, like, if we're talking about, for example, Djokovic's unbelievable comeback from down two sets to love against Stefano Tsitsipas, where a match like that really differed compared to what we saw with Nadal in this final, is right as that third set began, the scoreboard pressure had flipped. So we saw Djokovic in front in the third, and we saw him again in front in the fourth. You always felt like Nadal was always fighting it in this match, especially in the third and fourth sets before even like finding a late break in the fourth and, and forcing the fifth. Uh, so many games were going to deuce. We had such long, competitive, thrilling rallies. I think there was a 40-ball rally at some point, early second set, where Nadal won it with like a ridiculous cut slice backhand. And... Um, I think one ability that really separates sometimes the big three from, from everybody else in the field is their ability to prob problem solve and change tactics. Like clearly Nadal had to notice what he was doing in the first set, the way he was playing, this isn't working. Um, I have to find new strategies. And we saw him mixing in drop shots. We saw him come to net more. We saw him attacking on his backhand side, hitting it down the line more often. He knew he had to do something different. Uh, how he managed to do it and sustain that level for five hours, 25 minutes. I, I still don't know how he did that, um, but his ability to, um, yeah, find a solution to uh, the problem that was Daniel Medvedev, who's been a problem for the rest of the tour. And what can we say about Medvedev? And he's only been in a handful of, of moments like these in his career so far at the age of 25. I mean, giving way a whole decade to his opponent today. Um, but where did it go wrong for him and what does he take from this match? 
I was really quite shocked by his post-match press conference where mm-hmm. he walked in and before even taking a question, he says, time out. I'm going to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story of a kid and his dreams. And you're thinking, where is he going with this? And it kind of sounded optimistic at first. I was thinking it was going to a happy place, but it was quite the opposite, actually. And he was talking about how his dreams have been broken and how the reaction from the fans really sort of crushed his spirit and how for the rest of this year, he's not playing for the fans or anyone. He's playing for himself. He said he'll play for his Russian fans who he knows support him back home. And then he's going to prioritize any tournaments in Russia over even the French Open or Wimbledon. And that from here on end, he's playing for himself and it's himself and his for, family yeah, and not for anybody else. And, and who knows how long he's going to continue to play for long-term because he, he views tennis differently. Now it really sounded like, you know, quite a, a jaded view of things and that the, the effect of the crowd, which, which I thought, I mean, he's had plenty of crowds against him over the, the last couple mm-hmm. of years playing the sort of villainous role and seeming to kind of be okay with that. Um, you have to think when you're going up against a guy like Nadal, who's been around for so long, who's chasing history, that yeah, it's going to be tough to get the crowd on your side, probably. Yeah, I, I think like what we saw in that press conference, first of all, I think he was shell-shocked for 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 one. I, I think he, he's stunned that he managed to lose that match. And one thing that I think Medvedev lacked during this final, um, we knew the circumstances going in, basically, all of Rod Laver Arena was going to be pulling for Rafael Nadal. We, I think we sensed that going into this tournament. You didn't have Roger there. Novak Djokovic had been turned to a villain, and he's not there. And so everybody, you know, already Rafa is so popular as is. But I think everybody had got on board with thinking, we want Rafael Nadal to break this record. We want him to surpass Novak Djokovic, who is not here. And we want to see him win this title. So everybody was on board with this storyline. Of course, you know, he has probably 1% of this crowd in his favor as he goes into Rod Laver Arena. I get that's an incredibly intimidating atmosphere, but I think had Medvedev, you know, managed his actions in a different way throughout the match, he wouldn't have been hassled and pestered the way he was by the crowd. He had certain sort of motions, kind of like the fake thumbs up when he double faulted and there were cheers although there were more cheers for the fact that Nadal had broken serve, not over his double fault. And I think had he warmed to them the right way and shown his personality in a different fashion, they would have supported him differently. Like we saw that in the 2019 U.S. Open final, right, where everybody was mostly pulling for Nadal in that match, but he won over a lot of that crowd with his spirit, his fight, his incredible shot making, and he hit some unbelievable shots and played a great final. But I I think... His actions just through the two weeks to obviously Kyrgios was a brutal environment in that second round as well. He had to deal with a lot. He had some arguments with chair umpires. Just I don't think he went about managing or feeding off the crowd the right way. Yeah, I would say as well. And in the semifinals, his argument with the chair umpire didn't come across too well either. Um, but you know, Ben, the other thing is like, I don't have 15,000 people booing me and against me when I sit down to record the podcast with you, right? Like every time I screw up on the podcast, which happens, you know, who knows how many times, thank God there's no (laughs) counter. We don't have booze raining down on us or applause when we make mistakes, you know, because they want our, I don't know, some rival podcast. Like I can't put myself in that scenario because I've never been in in an environment where I've got that many, you know, fellow human beings who clearly don't want me to succeed. So Um, It's probably easy to talk about it from a distance, but if you were ever in that scenario, who knows how you'd react, maybe. 
Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think for Medvedev, maybe this was a reactionary press conference and he'll change his attitudes and maybe, you know, he goes through his next few tournaments, he gets great crowd support and he changes how he feels. Um, but for me, it wasn't, I don't think the crowd was personally against Medvedev more so in how hard they were cheering for Nadal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, what, what are we going to wrap up in terms of Nadal's greatness here and, and what we might see next from him? I mean, if he's healthy, he's going to be the favorite at the next slam, as he always is. He's got 13 of them at Roland Garros, despite the fact he didn't win a year ago. Will Novak be there? What would it like to see these two greats have another match head to head here? Um, going to be interesting. But uh, the, the vibe I got towards the end of the press conference from Rafa is who knows how much more time is left because the foot is not something that's uh, that's clearly resolved. It's more like the injury allowed him, it kind of subsided and allowed him to have this moment and to have these two weeks where he could put it together physically, but he doesn't know when it might act up, flare up again, causing him to put the racket down for who knows how long. That Yeah, that that's true. Um, one thing that was telling, at least as well, and that, that trophy ceremony was saying, he thought going into the Australian Open, he wasn't sure if it was maybe his last one. That that had crossed his mind a month and a half ago. Maybe this is the last time I'm playing the Australian Open. And he said, after all the energy I had from you guys over the past two weeks, I, I promise you I'm coming back next year. So um, there's still all that fire and passion within him. We know that. It depends on what his body allows him to do. If I'm Nadal, I got to tell you, I'm not playing another hard court event over, over February or March. I'm not playing Indian Wells or Miami. I'm, I'm just waiting for clay now. Like given what he just put his body through um, we'll, and we'll get to actually his match against Shapovalov too. Cause that's another story, but given what he just put himself through, are you really stepping on a hard court again before clay? I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch that either. It doesn't make any sense, right? you got to peak for the right moments, and for him, the next moment, hey, if he can get number 22, give himself two more than Novak and mm-hmm. Roger, requiring both of them to need three more to overtake him, which for Roger is impossible. For Novak is possible, but who knows what happens over the next year in terms of tournaments he can play. How do the young ones, the younger ones, you know, close that gap even further? So, yeah, if Rafa's able to get 22 in Paris – definitely bodes well for that overall count yeah certainly uh we should mention as well on the it's not too often that we talk about doubles but i I certainly thought the men's doubles tournament had quite a storyline nick curios um played an incredible second round match against Daniil Medvedev. I will say he was highly motivated in the singles draw, uh, fighting against the world number two, bowing out in a tight four sets. Then he joins up with buddy Tanasi Kokonakis, who won a lead in tournament actually coming into Australia. They team up, win six consecutive matches, take out the number one team, the number three team, all the way to a Grand Slam title in men's doubles. So officially, we can call Nick Curios a Grand Slam champion, something I didn't expect to ever say. Got a funny ring to it, huh? I mean, he could have had a few in, in singles competition by, by now, I would say, but we all know the reasons that that hasn't come to be. But uh, great for Aussie tennis fans, along with Ash Barty. Um, and, uh, you know, these guys have known each other since they were eight, nine years old, since they were kids. And Kyrgios afterwards ranked this as his number one career accomplishment. That's how much it it meant to him to do it with a buddy and to do something so unexpected. 
I mean, he joked in the post-match press conference and he said, uh, hey, remember that time we rolled off the couch and just won the Oz Open because <laughs> it's not like he put in a ton of doubles training here, right? And I wonder how this rubs some of the doubles specialists, the doubles guys uh, being beat by a couple of uh, admittedly singles players, guys who don't take this as seriously, guys who may not team up and, and play together again even this year, who knows, in the doubles, although they were intrigued by the prospect of qualifying for the tour finals just to tick people off is is what Kokanak has said um but uh, you didn't see this one coming you wonder what positive benefit that may have on Kyrios and for Kokanakis who's missed so much time with injury kind of nice to see a guy like that have some success too after all he's been through yeah I think for uh, Kokanakis this is a rejuvenation of his career and already started started at the beginning of the season winning that uh, emotional title as well in Australia even though it's just an ATP 250 but getting a big singles title like that the crowd obviously had such a massive influence on how these two played and I think to be honest if I'm looking at their second round match where they took out uh, Mektic and Pavic the number one seed those two just looked completely stunned by the environment they looked overwhelmed by the scenes um the sues which sound like booze calling out in their ears i don't think they could emotionally handle it and i think it left a few teams honestly shell-shocked and unable to deal with those types of pressures and of course curios and kokonakis are absolutely thriving on it uh so they get their grand slam title we'll talk a bit more about singles specifically the canadians um because you know, we had two Canadians make the, the quarterfinals of a Grand Slam. I like how I say that now, and it doesn't even sound surprising anymore. Like, we're just we're getting used to these types of results. And Felix Ojealiasim and Denis Shapovalov both making their maiden quarterfinal appearances at the Australian Open. I want to start with Felix Ojealiasim. For me, he has shown the most growth of any ATP player, any, like, solid ATP player in the past, in the first month of anybody on tour. And you're not the only one to suggest that either. Other tennis pundits have also taken stock and, and noticed the leaps that Felix seems to have made just seems a little bit more confident, a little bit more sure of himself. And it started off when he carried Canada in the number one position at the ATP cup, where him and Dennis ended up uh, taking the entire event, surprisingly, um, and along the way, he beat, you know, a player like Cam Nori, who'd been playing some really good ball over the last year, beat Alexander Zverev, which was huge. And Roberto Bautista Agu, again, a very accomplished player for Spain. Uh, and even though he got trounced by Medvedev there, he didn't show that any of that mattered when the two of them met at the Australian Open. And despite the fact that Felix came out, took the first two sets in, in that one and even had a, a match point in the third um, I, I don't think we're focusing on the, the collapse or the reversal of fortune, the fact that Medvedev came back and took that one. I think we're focusing on what Felix is able to do when he's playing top-level tennis. And boy, that was scary good what we saw there from him. Yeah, honestly, <clears throat> pardon me, that, that was really just an unbelievable effort from, from Felix, who, as you mentioned, like they had played just a couple weeks prior at the ATP Cup, and Medvedev had won that match, I think, 6-4, 6-love, like completely controlled that match from start to finish. And we were going into this quarterfinal match thinking, like, how could Felix possibly have a path to win this match, let alone, like, I think he's going to struggle to win a set. We, we didn't think his level was there yet. So he races out to a 7-6, 6-3 lead against the world number two and the top-ranked player in the tournament and pushed him to the absolute brink. And honestly... Medvedev was really saved by his serve 
that match point opportunity for Felix snuffed out with a huge ace. I think his biggest serve of the match came at that point on, on Felix's match point. Uh, he got himself out of more tricky situations in the fourth set. And then even in the fifth, you think, okay, he's coughed up this two sets to love lead against Medvedev. It's Danil who has all the momentum. Felix was still fighting and scrapping away in that fifth set. And even at five, four in the fifth, he had two opportunities to break back for five all. So he never wavered, never gave up. The competitive spirit was unbelievable and just so much growth in his game, like how confident he looks from the baseline and what he's doing. I think when we saw issues with him, probably through the mid stretch of 2021, it was indecisiveness and in how he wanted to play. And now it looks like crystal clear how he wants to attack players and, and what he wants to do. Yeah. His plan looks solid. He looks physically like he's grown and developed even over last year, a little extra muscle on the frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even though a year ago he, he led a two slet two set to love lead, slip against a Russian at the Aussie Open against uh, Karatsev. I don't equate these two to one another whatsoever. A year ago, no. he should have won that match. He was the better player. Uh, he should have found a way to, to, to get through that one. This time around, yeah, you've got a lead like that against the, the, the best player in the draw, the best hardcourt player out there right now. There is nothing to be ashamed of. And the way he handled himself both afterwards, on court, in press, even as he saw that lead slip away, uh, he carried himself with such poise, and I got a lot of people came up to me the next day who were like, hey, that Felix kid, he's really got something. He's really special and really proud of how he did. It was all positive talk, despite the fact that he had lost the match, and I think he endeared himself to a lot of people, um, you know, even outside of Canada, to show uh, what kind of guy he is. I've, you know, we've said it so many times before, but he's just such a classy dude, and uh, I've got so much respect for him. And I tweeted this out and this got a lot of traction. And I know mm. some of your tweets you were putting out on Matchpoint Canada as well. And on your own personal Twitter got a lot of, uh, you know, support because people see it. And, uh, and this is a guy who's a great role model for, for young kids growing up, I think. Certainly. Uh, you said it perfectly, I think, in that tweet. Perfect role model. And um, yeah, I was checking in with how people were admiring his effort, not just on, on tennis Twitter, but on Reddit threads, just around the tennis community. They were so, so impressed by the way he carried himself. And as you said, he's he's such a class act on and off the court. I thought the way he handled himself in press after that loss was, was really perfect. Taking everything that happened in Australia in a positive way and carrying that uh, towards the rest of 2022. We'll move to Denis Shapovalov. He also made the quarterfinals. He's on the top half of the draw. And for me, the big result, of course, beating Alexander Zverev, both Canadians beating Alexander Zverev this month. So that's excellent. 6-3-7-6-6-3 in straight sets. We didn't really conceive that as possible. I thought it was possible maybe he could win, but in straights, that was huge. Then he gets into a scrap with Rafael Nadal. This one goes five sets. Nadal was up two sets to love. Dennis is storming back. Nadal is barely moving on the court. Suffers from heat stroke. His stomach is hurting. He's calling the trainer. You think all the momentum is on Dennis's side um fifth set he concedes an early break and Nadal just kind of serves his way out of it and closes it in five sets and for me this result like Dennis and and this match I think there were some definite positives and a few negatives for me uh I'll I'll just say the positive I would say is obviously going toe-to-toe with an all-time great and the eventual winner a 21-time slam champion you took him to five sets 
the bad, and we've discussed this before, picking some fights with the chair umpire in this one, calling him corrupt. I didn't also love his behavior in press conference afterwards, where he seemed more focused on the amount of time Nadal was taking between sets and uh, his medical timeouts. Yeah, there's a little bit of growing up, I think, that still needs to happen there. And I wonder how he sees it now a week later, um, you know, having calmed down from that moment. But uh, boy, not easy to be a chair umper, that's for sure. That's one job <laughs> Difficult I would put spot. in my column of things I never want to do in life. Um, so respect to them for sure. Uh, but it was the timing of it too. Like he had only dropped the first set against Nadal and picked that time to sort of lose it on the umpire about the time that Nadal was taking. And whether you've got a point or not, I think at that stage, when you're only down by a set, you've got to just stay focused and positive and let the racket do your talking for you out there and try and stay on, on task. But, you know, I guess to look at it from the other side of things, it was almost like a Johnny McEnroe kind of moment because it fired him up after that second set loss as well. And he was able to get back into it. And, and, and I thought with Nadal being 35 and everything and Dennis taking sets three and four, that Shapovalov was going to take the match there. It really seemed like it was going in that direction. Um, And you think about how close we were really to having Felix and Dennis both knock off the two guys who made it to the finals. And, um, well, hopefully it's just a matter of time before we see Dennis and Felix in some Grand Slam finals. But for this one, definitely some positives, as you mentioned, for Dennis. I mean, beating Zverev in straight sets, what a statement that was. And I always love seeing Zverev getting beat, whether it's in straights or otherwise. So yep. I'll take that any day of the week. Thank you, Dennis. Um, but uh, yeah, I think for Chapo, if he can just sort of harness it a little bit, but he's got that hot temper. And we've seen athletes in many sports over the years that that need that. That's the way they... They get fired up, whether you're a McEnroe or a Connors. And, you know, I didn't particularly enjoy the look, but um, I spoke to some people who thought, oh, it was great to see some personality and some fire <laughs> and some spirit. So I guess it yeah. depends on, on your perspective. Um, but either way, it's, it's funny. I mean, when you look at Dennis and Felix, they're so polar opposite in, in some ways, both with their game and their demeanor. I guess there's a little something for everybody out there. No, that's that's well said. And I, I think like I think Dennis is always going to be that fiery emotional player. We've seen it for a while now. That's clearly his personality. I think he does wear his heart on his sleeve. I just want him to channel those emotions for good and not for bad. And I think the bad is if you are getting too distracted by things that are happening happening externally and not, you know, specific to the match. So for that fifth set. Like you have to be focused and so locked in. Like, what can I do to beat Rafa Nadal? That's already such a hard challenge in itself. If he's worried about the time that Nadal's taking in the toilet, like for, forget about it. How are you going to beat him if you're thinking about that? So that was my concern with him. I think you'll learn, learn and grow from this. Um, Nadal did not make any jabs back at Dennis and press when he was asked about it. Uh, he well, said, how about like, Rafa's little walk up to the net, even when he put his arm out and kind of gently <laughs> yeah, touched his shoulder. Like, like, it's like a hey, father, listen, like, listen, listen son, uh, you know, it's going to be all right here. Eh? I know. I know it was, it was an elder coming up to the net. Like, look, look, it's going to be okay. Um, but I, I hope Dennis will learn from that moment that the bad and look at the positive result, making quarterfinals again at a slam and channel that into hopefully uh, a great season. You're listening to match point Canada, the official podcast of tennis Canada, plenty of storylines to get to on the women's side. We will start with the champion. She's world number one for a reason. And Ash Barty simply 
dominated field dominated the field from the get-go from the start to the finish of this tournament she defeated american danielle collins 6376 to win the australian open women's singles title first player uh in australia to win the women's crown since chris o'neill back in 1978 44 year drought is over and now she owns titles across all three surfaces slam titles pretty amazing and uh despite the fact she owns three slam titles total to me the fact that they're on three different services just multiply the uh, significance of that i've always you know had crazy respect for players who were able to do it across all surfaces clearly on the men's side we've got rafa roger and and novak and on the women's side you've got serena williams of course among uh, active players uh, but how hard it is to do that on clay, on hardcourt, on grass, three services that are so different from one another. You're, you're not a one-trick pony. You're proving that you've got so much depth to your game. Uh, and I think it's pretty safe to say that if she continues to play like this, more slams are clearly going to be on the horizon for Ash Barty. Uh, I mean, I would take, if you were offering me, you know, would you like 10 slams all at one slam or three, but across three different ones, three different services? I mean, to me, that just show something really special. And, you know, I think on the men's side of a player like Stan Vavrinka, it might not be three surfaces, but it's three of the different slams yeah. that he's won. Mm-hmm. Um, that versatility. And, and that's just something super special. So hats off to her. I mean, she just destroyed the field until the finals where Collins gave her a, a run there in that second set. But otherwise, Barty was just terrorizing people, those score lines to get there. Oh my goodness. And it seemed like she got stronger and stronger as the tournament went on. Um, you know, she gets a third round test with Camille Georgie and wins that six, two, six, three, Amanda Anisimova, of course, had the amazing upset of Naomi Osaka, where I thought, I thought Naomi played a pretty good match. And we saw Anisimova basically play the match of her life and beat her in a third set, uh, super tie break. Um, Barty brushes off Anisimova, Anisimova six, four, six, three. And that match was the first break of serve we saw from anybody um, across 63 consecutive holds that Barty had. That's such a jaw-dropping stat. Finally, Anisimova broke her serve, uh, but then just uh, quarterfinals beats Pagula 6-2-6 love, beats Madison Keys 6-1-6-3. I that like shocked me because Keys have been playing a fantastic yes. tournament. I yep. thought that one was going to go three sets for sure. And, and Keys had won a tournament going in as well to the Australian Open. So she had won Adelaide. She was playing amazing tennis. She had just beaten Bedosa straight sets. She's just beaten Krychikova, your French Open champion for last year. So she was in fantastic form. And, and Barty completely dissected her. And I like the quote from Pagula after she lost to Barty. Um, she said, Barty does everything just a little bit better than everyone else. Um, just... We, we see the variety in her game, but she's just outplaying everybody across all margins, it feels like. And she's so difficult to beat in that sense. The final was a different story because it was a, a lot closer. I mean, Barty won the first set 6-3. She finds herself down 5-1 uh, to Danielle Collins, who was just on fire throughout the Boy, tournament. Boy, who thought Danielle Collins would have such a good run? Oh, wait, wait, you did, Ben. I appreciate the shout out. Um, and I, I have to give credit to um, writer for tennis.com, John Burkock, because I was discussing potential like players with him on the women's side. I was like, who do you think could have a big run? And he brought up the name to me, Danielle Collins. And then I was like, yeah, she plays well in Australia. So I went and looked at her draw and I was like, you know what? I see, I see a lot of opportunity 
here for for Collins and she hadn't played a tournament going into Australia but she played really well at the back end of 2021 so I rode the hot hand from last year and someone who played well in 2019 and made the semifinals I can't believe she made the final what a fantastic tournament for her and she led how far you saw her going huh no no I was thinking maybe quarters but uh five one up in the second set and nearly won that second I think uh, Barty hit a down the line forehand winner at like 30 all five three that painted the line and suddenly she broke again um but Collins had beaten Barty last season at the front end of the season and she lost to Barty seven six in the third so she's someone who seems to know how to play her very very close um just mentioning a bit of her tournament as well like the players she beat um in the semi in the semifinals, Iga Sviantek, she took at 6-4, uh, She stopped Elise Cornet in her incredible run in the quarterfinals, wins over uh, Mertens in the fourth round. Clara Towson, who was there in the third, was surprising because she beat Contivate, but just a, a crazy run by another American, and the Americans always seem to play well in Melbourne for, for whatever reason. And Collins is up into the top 10 now, which is also yeah. a very impressive. The top-ranked American woman, and who would have guessed that, you know, uh, a year ago, there are a lot of American women in the top hundred of the game, I should say, um, and uh, and Madison Keys also with some some great gains in in this tournament. Um, one more thing about Ash Barty before we move on is just mm-hmm. you know you've got a great champion when you see so many of her peers congratulating her on social media after the victory. I mean, players don't have to do this, right? No. Like this is a competitive sport. It's kind of cutthroat. Everyone's out for the ranking points, the money, the prestige, all the big tournaments. So to see, so I've never seen actually, I've never seen so many fellow players congratulate someone as the congratulations that Ash Barty received from her fellow um, uh, female tennis players. It was astounding. It was overwhelming and they don't have to do that. The fact they did that is because hey, they, they respect her game. But, you know, maybe even more so they respect her as a person. And she is just one of those super honest and, and likable characters of the sport. And uh, I think women's tennis is really lucky to have her as a number one right now. She's she's fantastic for tennis. Yeah, yeah, she really is. Well, well said. Uh, a perfect world number one. And she's solidified herself as the best player in the women's game. You wonder... Um, it, you know, is she the favorite at all these events as we go forward? Because we've seen her win the French Open. We've seen her win Wimbledon. I will note her coach said the tennis balls are lighter at the U.S. Open and don't particularly suit Barty's game. So her coach thought it would be very difficult for her to win the U.S. Open, which I found interesting. Little details I wouldn't have thought of, but uh, she's certainly a contender at the French Open and Wimbledon, without a doubt. And all these various WTA 1000s as well couple other stories I wanted to mention. I, I brought up Elise Cornet. This was her, her 63rd consecutive major that she's playing in at 32 years old. And she had never been to the quarterfinals. She had been to the fourth round in Australia in 2009. 13 years later, she achieves the quarterfinals. And she does it interviewing her as former player and former world number five, Yelena Dokic who made the quarterfinals of that 2009 Australian Open. And they shared, I don't know if you saw this interview between the two, but they shared such an endearing, sentimental moment um, because Cornet mentioned how she so badly wanted to win that fourth round match to have a chance to play Yelena Dokic. And then as the interview was wrapping up, Cornet took the microphone and said, I want to take a moment uh, to thank you 
because of everything you've overcome in your life. And for those who know Yelena Dokic's story, the mental and physical abuse she endured from her father, she wrote about it in this tell-all book. And now to be back still around the game, commentating, doing a fantastic job. I thought it was such a beautiful moment. They shared a hug and it was quite an emotional scene on court. So like really, really classy from Cornet. Yeah, very, um, to very do that. touching. And uh, wow, 63 majors. I mean, my math isn't great, but that's almost like 16 years of playing all the majors. Yep. And she only just turned 32 a week ago. So talk about starting your professional career early at a young age. What a young talent. But then to have that perseverance and longevity to keep on going, keep on trucking and have your career best moment at a major after all of those experiences, what a, what a testament to the hard work and, and never quitting. And, and another player I know we wanted to speak of, talk about never quitting and continuing on a little bit older at age 36 is uh, mm-hmm. Kaya Kanepi, um, who has now made uh, seven quarterfinals, quarterfinals at every slam, uh, twice at the French, twice at Wimbledon, twice at the U S open. And now in Australia, and again, even though she isn't one of those players you associate with, you know, having a top 10 presence or, or ever winning a slam, she's one of those players that I feel no one wants to see in their path at a major. Oh, my God. She's she's an absolute draw killer. She's she's done it so many times. I was thinking, actually, even when Sophia Kennan came back to try and defend her Australian Open title in 2021, who did she draw opening round? Kaya Kanepi, and she was gone. And Kanepi opened her tournament here, dismissing Angie Kerber, the 16th seed, and a player who's won three slams, takes her out, and then goes on this spectacular run. And it feels silly that, you know, I picked an Estonian to win this tournament at the start. <laughs> And uh, it's a different Estonian who gets much, much further. And, and Kaya Kanepi is maybe the greatest athlete Estonia, a very small country, has ever produced four WTA singles titles. She's been inside the top 15. And um, again, longevity for her to produce these results at age 36. I think she entered this tournament ranked 115. And, you know, Djokovic recently has always been talking about peaking at majors. For me, Kaya Kanepi is like the perfect example of a player who knows how to peak at majors and play super, super well in the two-week tournaments. Yeah, super, super impressive. And there's something to be said to be a player like that. Like, yeah, maybe you can't do it tournament in and and tournament out and, and perhaps between the slams as well. There isn't that same level of consistency for whatever reason. But uh, it's something to certainly be proud of when you look at the list of top ranked players. And you mentioned a few of them there that she's beaten at the slams over the years. I just feel like, yeah, she's been getting these upsets for, for a heck of a long time. Now, this is not some new phenomena for mm-hmm. Kaya Kanepi. And uh, I, I take that career. I think most players would take a career where you've made it to the final eight at every single one of the grand slam tournaments. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. A um, lot of great players that I think we had high hopes for going out early in this tournament. I mentioned Annette Contivate was my pick to win it going in. I gave my reasons and it was Clara Towson who took her out the second round. That was a huge surprise. Elise Cornet, her run started with an early upset of Garbina Muguruza. And I was pretty fascinated to learn that she's won the last three matches she's played against Muguruza. So she really owns that head-to-head. We know Osaka went out in the third round to Anisimova. Arena Sabalenka, I thought she did a great job overcoming some of her double-fault woes in the first few rounds, but she went out finally in the fourth round. 
I want to make, mention one uh, Canadian story on the junior side. Kayla Cross and Victoria Mboko um, got to the finals in junior girls doubles before losing to uh, Clervy. Uh, I'm not going to be able to say this name. <laughs> Gun, uh, Clervy Gunu and Diana Schneider uh, beat them in the final 6-4, 6-3. But uh, great success for the two junior girls, Kayla Cross and Victoria Mboko. I'm hopefully going to chat with them in the coming week or two about their experience playing in Melbourne. Yeah, and something I think we're going to try and focus on also in 2022 is trying to preview a little bit the up-and-coming Canadian players. I know Definitely. we've had a few people on social reach out and, and ask us if we can kind of do a preview episode or or look down the pipeline, and I think that would be a great idea. We've had Rob Steckley on before who coaches Kayla Cross, um, but uh, yeah, maybe get some coaches, some younger players, and kind of talk to them about where they're at right now and what they hope to do and and how the the group of Canadian athletes we have right now is inspiring them, which is no doubt part of the the whole process is you want to have the Dennis's, Felix's, Bianca's, Layla Annie's to inspire and motivate that that next group of players. We're seeing that happening right now. As we move past the Aussie Open and coming up this week, uh, there are no Canadians in action in any ATP events, but we do have three 250 level tournaments coming up in Argentina, in India, and in France. Um, the biggest news for me when I look at those draws is the return of Dominic Team, who's in uh, Cordoba, for his first event since playing in Mallorca back in June, where he had to withdraw with injury. So kind of forgotten about him and one of those players who's in between the big three and the next gen, a little yes. bit older than the Medvedevs, Zverevs and such, and, and clearly younger than the big three. Be interesting to see what he can do if he's healthy. Uh, hopefully he's not returning and going to be playing one of those killer schedules like we typically see from him where he overexerts himself. Although that being said, he's playing singles and doubles in his return to Cordoba. So who knows what he's got planned for, for the frequency on court. But it'll be great to see him back. And, uh, and that's a clay court event where, uh, well, he plays well on either surface, really. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably most, obviously most dominant on on clay yeah i mean it, it's weird he capped his season in 2020 perfectly winning that u.s open continued from there in 2020 but i think he suffered from burnout without a doubt just playing too many tournaments too many matches it carried over into 2021 and i think he suffered beyond little injuries uh some mental exhaustion one challenge for team right now is they just take a peek at the rankings he missed an opportunity to go to australia and play there he's dropping 21 places so very weird to see him ranked number 37. So he'll have a lot of work to do to, to boost that ranking back up. I hope he doesn't overplay. If he's playing great tennis, maybe come the clay court swing, he's someone we might have to consider. Is he a possible French Open contender again? Because we've seen yeah, him make absolutely. a pair of finals, right? Absolutely. If he's if he's healthy and feeling good, for sure. Yeah. Um, no Canadian men in action this week, as I mentioned, but for Dennis and Felix, you can understand why they'd want to take a week off. And on the WTA, nothing happening, nothing doing. There are no uh, WTA tournaments, which I find kind of surprising not to build on the momentum of a slam. Mm. But at any rate, we can share with you that uh, Leila Annie Fernandez has mentioned we will next see her in Mexico later in February, playing in both Guadalajara and Monterey, where she won her first WTA title uh, a year ago. We have awesome memories anytime she plays in Mexico. I'll do one last mention. Vashik Pospisil, 
he uh, skipped the Australian Open swing, uh, skipped Melbourne and opted because he never particularly plays well there, opted for challenger events to kind of get rolling again after a tough 2021 and uh, hit his stride this past week, capturing the uh, challenger title in Kimper, France, uh, beating Gregoire Barrere in three sets in the final. So a nice uh, ATP challenger win for Vashik Pospisil as he gets his 2022 season going. So I'm, I'm sure with that win, he's probably looking to move back onto uh, ATP tournaments and not challengers so good for him um man those were a long two weeks i'm gonna get some hopefully a regular sleep schedule going going again um but you you sound sharp and you look sharp all things considered ben i I have to say but but you've really put yourself through it the past couple of weeks so uh rest up and tennis fans you know many of you have been along for the ride as well you know what it's like when you kind of sacrifice sleep and walk around like a zombie all day but you catch such great tennis so we understand it we love it and we love you tuning in and and listening to us and and hope you've enjoyed our coverage of the first part of the uh the season down under yeah please follow us on our social channels you've been listening to matchpoint canada we will talk to you next time I guess we know this goal on and on. Does anybody know what we are looking for? Another hero, another mindless crime behind the curtain in the pantomime. Hold the line. Does anybody want to take it anymore?